Hello and welcome to our Common Ground podcast, Beyond Aporia. I'm your host, Brian Smith, and with us today is Jeffrey Rosen, the president and CEO of the National Constitution Center. Uh, the Los Angeles Times has called you uh, the nation's most widely read and influential legal commentator. That was actually my mother. Oh, it was your mother <laughs> yes. wrote it for the Yes, she did. It was great. It was wonderful <laughs> that they printed that. Well, that was, that's what, a, what an excellent... <laughs> Not in the research. No, no, no. no. what an excellent... <laughs> yes. uh, Excellent uh, endorsement. Yes, yes, thanks, Mom. <laughs> uh, thank you so much for coming to speak with us. It's really an honor to have you here. Um, so I, I just want to kind of get started. I'm obviously the president and CEO of the National Constitution Center, and not to sound too uh, sort of questioning, but the Constitution obviously is a document that's 200 years old now. Um, we live in a world of cell phones, the internet, um, bullet trains in Japan. Um, why is it so important to give students today the opportunity to interact with the Constitution, sort of learn it, when um, we're so far removed from the initial thoughts and designs of the people that wrote it? It's crucially important to give all citizens uh, the ability to educate themselves about the Constitution because the Constitution is the one document that holds us together in these polarized, fractious times. It encapsulates what divides and what unites us, it provides a framework for civil debate. It allows us to disagree without being disagreeable. And even though we disagree about many aspects of its meaning, it encapsulates the values, including liberty, equality, and rule by we the people that define what it means to be an American. Are we, are we still ruled by we the people considering the, 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 the natural you know, evolution of the branches of government, you know, the executive branch, was not very powerful to begin with and grew in power and um, you know this the the Supreme Court the the judicial branch has changed in sort of the ability and powers that they have compared with um, perhaps the original interpretations of the Constitution in the early 1800s sometimes I know for a lot of people it feels like we have a lot less involvement in the process so I mean obviously the Constitution begins with we the people are, are we are we drifting away from that Congress is not we the people. The president is not we the people. The judges are not we the people. Only the Constitution can speak for we the people because of the special method by which it was ratified. It was precisely because the Constitutional Convention called special ratifying conventions to make the proposals of the convention supreme law that the constitutional text is allowed to speak for we the people and it was subsequently amended to include those who've been previously excluded who are also part of we the people now the theory is and it's in federalist 78 hamilton says when there's a clash between the will of the people represented by the constitution and those of the people's uh servants represented by ordinary legislation you prefer the master to the servant the principal to the agent so that's the idea that when the Supreme Court strikes down a law in the name of the Constitution, it's not thwarting rule by we the people, but serving it. Now, there are plenty of objections to that theory. Right. You can have a good yeah. constitutional law class on all that. But uh, to the degree that the branches are performing their constitutional duties, the Supreme Court striking down actions by the executive and Congress that go outside of their constitutional lanes, Congress checking the president, the president uh, executing the laws of Congress, then the Constitution rules. And to the degree that those structures are being challenged, 
uh, it's an example of the relevance of the Constitution and the need to defend it. Okay. Um, I like the discussion about we the people because it kind of leads into another of my questions, which is um, you're in the Midwest right now. I mean, in the wake of the, uh, the, the most recent election in 2016, and we're beginning the run-up now to the 2020 election, uh, there's a topic that I keep hearing come up, especially in this portion of the country, which is the Electoral College. The idea that you know people in populous areas, in particular the coasts, um, believe that the, the votes of people in the rural portions of the country, the Midwest and um, the Rocky Mountains, the Great Plains, that somehow their vote is actually more powerful than the vote of somebody that lives in New York. And uh, I'm just wondering, constitutionally, would there ever be a basis for eliminating that system of electing our officials and moving towards a purely popular vote in order to give every person in the country a vote that has equal power? So there's a lot to say about this important topic. We just had a great debate about it at the Constitution Center last week, and your listeners can check it out on our podcasts, uh, which are posted on the interactive Constitution of the Constitution Center. Uh, and this was a debate between uh, Randy Barnett and, and Vic Amar. So to answer the question, is there a basis for changing it? Well, it would take a constitutional amendment mm -hmm. in order to change the Electoral College. And in practice, a constitutional amendment is not going to pass because an amendment would require proposal by two-thirds of both houses of Congress or by a special convention called by two-thirds of the states and ratification by three-quarters of the state legislatures and the non-populous states are not going to right, they support won't accept those. It. Right, so exactly. that's why we're not going to have an amendment. Yeah. Now there's one possible way to get around this. It's called a compact of the states where several populous states have agreed to give the winner of the popular vote, all of their electoral votes. All of the delegate all votes, delegates. right. Yep. And if enough states agree to do this, then you might be able to have a popularly elected president. The wrinkle there is that the Constitution requires all compacts of the states to be approved by Congress, and Congress won't approve it for the same reason that the right, Senate exactly. will, will, will never go for it. So in practice, probably not. In theory, should what's the case for the Electoral College? It's obviously not the original case. The original Electoral College was proposed as a compromise after James Wilson, the guy who wrote the preamble to the Constitution, mm -hmm. wanted popular election for right. the president. James Madison wanted legislative election, election by the legislature. The compromise is the Electoral College, which is supposed to be a small group of wise men, wise white men, who would know the candidates. They would be familiar with them and their characters, and therefore could make a more informed choice than the people who would either be ill-informed and also wouldn't know the candidates because the country was so big. The, all that went out the window after the election of 1800, which deadlocked in a tie between Jefferson, Jefferson and, and Burr. Burr. Right. And in order to avoid that ever happening again, the 12th Amendment to the Constitution required that the president and vice president be of the same party and not run against each other, and also acknowledged the rise of political parties, which were nascent then. And ever since, the 1800 or so, the Electoral College has essentially rubber-stamped the choice of the party rather than engaging in independent deliberation. Right. So what's the justification for the current Electoral College if it's just ratifying party choice and the parties, uh, now that they increasingly choose by primary, 
are often dominated by the most extreme voices in both parties rather than even the party voters as a whole. I think the best argument is that the interest of small states need to be defended. We don't just want New York and Texas and California choosing the president. Now, the counter to that argument is the interests of the small states are, are defended in the Senate. That was part of the original compromise that made the right. Constitution possible. And the Senate is unamendable. <clears throat> the, the, the Constitution does not allow uh, the two senators for every state to be changed. So why represent the interests of the small states twice? Right. And maybe because you think it's really important that they be represented twice and it's good to wage national campaigns where you campaign in every state there at this point we're into policy arguments where you can kind yeah. of argue it round or flat but it is important just to acknowledge first that it's unlikely in practice to be amended and second that it is not serving its original purpose okay um talking a lot about sort of the way that the constitution set forth our our system of government and yet another topic in which in recent days people have been talking about changing certain elements of our system of government um, and the fact that you have an upcoming book on Ruth Bader Ginsburg, which I've heard nothing but good things about, and I highly recommend all of our listeners go out and buy a copy. But thank you. You're Please welcome. <laughs> you know, take Absolutely. the plug. <laughs> I will. I certainly will. Um, in 1937, FDR introduced a bill that was designed to allow for the nomination of additional Supreme Court justices based on the age, the number of justices. I think over the age of what was it, 70 years and three months or something like that, in, in essence, to create a Supreme Court that would be willing to rubber stamp his New Deal. And in recent days, with the, the current shift, uh, a lot of people see ideologically in the Supreme Court from a sort of a more balanced court to a conservative court. Um, I've heard many people, commentators, as well as, on occasion, candidates for political office who suggest that it might be a good idea to revisit the issue and increase the number of justices on the Supreme Court. And I brought up Ruth Bader Ginsburg because she's on record very clearly saying that nine is the correct number, that that's the number she'd like to see on the court. Do you agree with her? Is that is that the best number for the court? Whatever Justice Ginsburg says at this moment, I would, I would agree with. And uh, in addition to my great respect for her views, I do agree that it would be uh, a disaster for the nonpartisan legitimacy of the court to start changing its numbers based on political disagreement. The reason the court packing pa plan failed in 1937 uh, is, or rather in 36 it failed, in 1937 the, the court uh, changed its mind, was that Justices Brandeis as well as Stone, two more liberal justices, made their opposition clearer. Now, the argument for it, of course, is that the nonpartisan legitimacy of the court is being questioned. Democrats say, as they've just argued in this extraordinary brief filed in a Second Amendment case, Senator, Senator Sheldon Whitehouse argued essentially that this is an illegitimate court, that there are stolen seats on it, and now that it's been so politicized, unless the court restrains itself, then Democrats will have to correct the balance with court packing. Right. This is filed in a brief. 
in a brief to the Supreme Court. In a brief Court, to the Supreme Court. Not you, a very effective way of right. persuading the Supreme Court. By the way, if you don't, don't fix yourself, we're going to... Nice, yeah. nice court you've got Open the door. Shame if something should happen to it. Um, but it's a sign of how uh, explosive things have gotten. So my, my agreeing with Justice Ginsburg that the nonpartisan legitimacy of the court would be threatened by court packing doesn't mean that many people already don't view it as compromised. To make things even more explosive, you could imagine future battles that could provoke further court packing. Say that a Democrat is elected and appoints a Supreme Court justice and a Republican Senate refuses to confirm any nominee appointed by a Democrat, not within the, beyond the realm of possibility according to some observers. Well then, if the Democrats finally did get the Senate, and obviously they need it to pass any court packing, you can be sure that they court pack saying you literally stolen our seats. The only thing we can do is, is retaliate through politics. Isn't it wouldn't the argument be that that already occurred when Obama made his nomination and of Merrick Garland the Mitch McConnell in the Senate decided that they would not hold a vote on it? That's precisely the argument that the senators and, and others are making, and that's why a number of Democratic presidential candidates have endorsed court backing. So it's in the air. This is an extraordinarily precarious time for the court's nonpartisan legitimacy. The justices are aware of this. Not just Justice Ginsburg has opposed court packing, but we all saw Chief Justice Roberts uh, in his important statement that there are no Obama judges and Trump judges, but just judges. Right. Yeah. So the judges, the justices are doing everything they can to resist these pressures and to maintain their legitimacy, but it is a very precarious situation. Is it possible? I, I understand that all justices and really all judges, for the most part, on all levels of, in our court system, give sort of credence or lend their voices to the concept that judges are not to deliberate based on their own personal opinions or politics, but simply on the law, how the Constitution's written, and in particular with the Supreme Court justices, that's sort of their mantra is, you know, I will, I will judge this case based on its merits, not based on what, you know, my wife or husband or somebody, my, one of my friends has been telling me I should do based on politics. Is that, is that really possible? Is, is it possible for a, a Supreme Court justice to completely divorce themselves from their own personal leanings when, you know, that, that's what makes us who we are. That's the large part of, you know, who they've developed it, you know, being in universities and as they've moved through their lives. It's the aspiration, it's the ideal, it's the hope of uh, the rule of law. Of course, we're all the product of our upbringings, and the justices have acknowledged this and said that their parents and their education and even their faith traditions have affected who they are. But as you say, they all insist that they're able to divorce those considerations from their constitutional conclusions. Now, scholars and critics say, hey, then why do you have so many decisions that align along ideological lines. Mm -hmm. And the justices and their defenders, and I'm in the defenders camp of the hope of nonpartisan adjudication, will say, those that's not the whole story. There are more cases that are unanimous than are five to four. There are many unexpected alignments mm -hmm. that people don't pay attention to because they don't get the headlines, like the case last year where Justices Gorsuch and Ginsburg were the only two dissenters in the majority's decision to 
allow someone to be prosecuted twice for the same offense. The, right. the two justices disagreed on double jeopardy grounds, although they disagreed about the methodology, Justice Gorsuch coming from an originalist perspective and mm -hmm. Justice Ginsburg from a civil libertarian perspective. Um, just studying the court and looking at the decisions, I'm persuaded that the justices are trying to separate their political from their constitutional views. They are more moved by their self-conceived judicial philosophies or methodologies than they are by pure politics. Justice Thomas has said he's never heard a word of pure politics being right. exchanged in the Supreme Court courtroom. So unless you want to claim that the, that the justices, among the most brilliant and able lawyers in our society, are completely deluding themselves, mm -hmm. then you'd have to give them the respect of noting that this is what they're trying to do, the way they conceive of their jobs. And I, I think, um, as somebody who has spoken in depth to um, Justice Ginsburg, for example, um, is, it, is it a case of the office sort of bestowing on them a sense of what their duty is, that by assuming that office, it, it gives them additional clarity of thought in that I do have to divorce myself from my own opinions, particularly here? Yes, but all judges do this. Talk, talk to any judge at any level, federal judges, district appellate judges, state judges, all will say that they are faithfully trying to apply the law rather than engage in pure politics. And uh, the, the truth is that it's hard, and it's especially hard at the Supreme Court. And Justice Breyer has talked about the fact that in, in cases where there, people don't have strong views in advance, it's easier to re achieve unanimity. Like in complicated statutory cases, cases of interpreting federal statutes or laws, they're often unanimous. And Justice Breyer said, "You know, you you, you might not, you might be willing to change your mind because you haven't thought hard about the case. And if someone makes a really good argument, you might change it." He said that's not the case for questions like abortion or affirmative action, just because the justices have such well thought out constitutional views on the matters, and in many cases they they may correspond with their. Uh, uh, policy views, but that's not the way that they conceive it. So the, the, uh, the Constitution is made for people of fundamentally differing points of view, as Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes said, and most of the constitutional questions the Supreme Court hears are difficult, they are open, there are good arguments on both sides, and there's plenty of leeway for a judge to go in any direction he or she is moved based on his or her approach to the Constitution. Um, another, I, I want to kind of look at another hot button topic, especially on college campuses. Um, a couple days ago, Louis Farrakhan was in town um, delivering a talk and uh, was uh, protested, had to change venues, um, things of that nature. And this, this happens a lot on college campuses as well, um, that a potentially controversial speaker or somebody that people might not agree with comes in or is um, invited by the university to come give a talk and a large group of students will say no this is our this is our spot this is our safe place that where we're trying to learn we're trying to grow and develop ourselves we don't want somebody like this to be given a platform to come in and talk um, but on the other hand the constitution the, the, at its most fundamental right is that of free speech so does that right conflict with the rights of the students to have a place where they are not forced to expose themselves to somebody who might be absolutely abhorrent to them in terms of what they believe. As, assuming, of course, that the speaker in no way, shape, or form is actually advocating violence or doing something that the First Amendment 
very deliberately does not cover inciting to riot, things of that nature. Is there is there a compromise constitutionally between free speech and universities that want a safe place for their students to learn? Uh, so first, it's uh, thank you for for letting me know that Louis Farrakhan is still uh, creating uh, controversy on college campuses. He was protested back in 1991 when I was in law school. Oh wow! Okay. Absolutely, he's yeah. been making trouble for a long time. Yes, and I think that the uh, students who protested him back when I was in law school uh, believed that they wanted to express their disapproval of his message of virulent anti-Semitism, but they did not try to disinvite him or shut him down. Right. And that, I think, is the solution. Uh, the Constitution, of course, only applies to public universities. Private universities are not formally bound by the First Amendment. Right. Public universities are forced to respect the First Amendment. They're not required to invite any particular speaker, but if a speaker is legitimately invited, then that speaker generally cannot be subject to what's called a heckler's veto, where mm -hmm. a vocal majority or minority can shut down the speech because they disapprove of the message. Universities generally have an obligation to protect the ability of the speaker to get the message out and not be shouted down. And that's why students do not have a right, at least not a constitutional right, to have safe spaces where they are immune from views that make them feel uncomfortable, as, as you put it. They may have a strong interest in it, and they may argue for that, but that is not a right that the First Amendment recognizes, and it's not even an interest that the theory of the First Amendment recognizes, since the First Amendment, as you so well put it, only allows the suppression of speech if it's intended to and likely to cause imminent violence. Mm -hmm. And that's because the framers had such a powerful faith in reason rather than passion that they believed, as Justice Brandeis so memorably and immortally put it in the Whitney case, that the best response to evil counsels as good ones, and as long as there's time enough for deliberation, then uh, th uh, the marketplace of ideas should rule. Now, that there are strong dignitary interests on the other side. Students feel like their dignity is affronted when hateful speakers make, for example, anti-Semitic or racist statements. At the moment, the case law doesn't allow for dignity to trump free expression. The situation is different in Europe, which does have a sweeping right to be forgotten on the internet. Yes. Yeah. So if we were, you know, in, in Europe and after the show you tweeted that I was the most boring guest <laughs> you'd ever had, then I could sue you afterward and right, demand yeah. that Google remove the tweet. I promise I won't. I promise I won't do that. Well, then, then I won't sue you. <laughs> but Google would still have to make a decision about whether I'm a public figure or your uh, tweet is in the public interest, and if they guessed wrong, they'd be liable for up to 2% of their annual income, which is $70 billion. <laughs> that's yeah, wow. So that's why Google has removed 42% of the takedown requests it's received. Just this morning, I read, the European court issued an important decision refusing to extend the right to be forgotten outside of Europe. So France, which has very globalist aspirations, mm -hmm. wanted for uh, content objectionable in France to be removed by Google across the globe, and the European court said, no, we can enforce this within the European Union using IP blocking, but it does not have to be applied everywhere, which is a, at least some victory for the free expression side. But it just, it just goes to show that this entire debate about dignity versus liberty, safe spaces versus free expression is one where the United States is an outlier. We, we protect more free expression than any other country in the globe. We generally 
are willing to insist on the raucousness of public discourse because we believe so strongly in free expression. And that's why, from a constitutional perspective, free speech is supposed to win. Um, I love that you brought up the, uh, the, the right to be forgotten and sort of this, this digital concept because obviously another one of the um, huge issues, I think I've heard it put by multiple people, including lawyers that are next grade decade of uh, legal struggle and um, constitutional struggle is going to be the right to privacy, especially in terms of what exists now, the ease of information to be accessible on the internet. Um, obviously, the founders and the, the writers of the Constitution, the framers of the Constitution, had no concept of the level at which information would be disseminated 200 years after that. I mean, they were, they were sending messages still on horseback and um, guessing at the city in which the person might be found. So do you, do you feel like, I guess first of all, that this is something that really needs to be strictly codified in our Constitution, um, considering that we're, we're in the digital age now, we're never gonna go back, we're not gonna ever escape it, it this is where we are, it's gonna only increase in importance. So is that a situation that needs to actually be set out, written down, or is that something that the courts can sort of adjudicate or the legislation can adjudicate and we can just kind of go forward on a case-by-case -case basis? I'm, I'm op relatively optimistic that the courts will be able to deal with restrictions on government information gathering and surveillance in an age of new technologies. Uh, we, uh, the cell phone decisions are good examples mm -hmm. of unanimous courts, all nine justices, saying you can't open someone's cell phone on arrest without a warrant or you can't trace their movements 24-7 using global positioning system devices because to do so would be to invade privacy in the same way as the general warrants that sparked the American Revolution by allowing unregulated information gathering. What courts are less equipped to do and what the Constitution doesn't say anything about is information that we voluntarily post on social media and is then taken out of context. The Constitution says Congress shall make no law. It doesn't say Mark Zuckerberg shall make no law. So Facebook is not, and Twitter are not regulated by the First Amendment. And the real privacy harms that hit closest to home now are not necessarily NSA surveillance or even warrantless wiretapping. From the because there are courts the that there are courts that exist that are kind of secretive and hidden from the public eye in which we don't know what warrants are being gotten or who's being listened to. Uh, that's true, uh, and those cases are important. But when citizens think about what am I concerned about, it's I posted a really embarrassing video on the <laughs> internet that came up 20 years later as the Prime Minister of Canada is learning this week and as every people are Very learning every single day. There, there is no um, easy constitutional or I think even legislative solution to this fundamental problem of how to avoid being judged out of context in a world of short attention spans, a world where the first thing people remember about you is the worst thing you've ever done. Uh, I don't think the right to be forgotten is the right solution. I think it tramples on rights of free expression in the name of ill-defined dignitary rights that can be misused for political purposes. Google has taken down 42% of the takedown requests it's received, including requests to take down articles about the right to be forgotten itself. Mm -hmm. And truthful information, like reporting about a murder, uh, uh, it was one that um, 
the Italian courts just demanded that Google remove uh, in the name of the right to be forgotten because the murder took place seven years ago. It's, it's not consistent with the values of a free society. So there's no simple constitutional, legislative, or even technological solution to this problem. I think the solution would have to be an evolution of social norms, an, an increasing willingness to forgive, to put in context, to realize that we can make mistakes as kids and even not as kids and still not be canceled as the right. phrase yeah, yeah. goes. Cancel, cancel culture, yeah. The, the lack of empathy for human frailty can be a great threat to a liberal society. And now that everything is recorded and nothing can be erased, I think we'll have to work together to develop more of it. So, so really, ultimately, there is no sort of, we can't create an amendment to the Constitution that gives us you know, the right to digital privacy and things of that nature without damaging other rights. I, I would find it hard to craft one. Of course, you can pass any amendment that two-thirds of the uh, Congress and three-quarters of the states want to approve. But Cat is the official animal. That, person, that would be <laughs> just fine. That's right. right. That, that would be excellent. But we can't do it while maintaining values of free expression. Brandeis is so interesting here. He wrote the most famous article on the right to privacy in 1890, worried about a new technology, the Kodak camera and the instant press that was leading to the proliferation of gossip which he thought was crowding out public interest, making it impossible to discuss matters of public concerns and affronting people's dignity. He initially called for a new tort. It sounds like a dessert, but it was a kind right, of yeah. legal right of action against people who take pictures of you or gossip mm -hmm. about you. But he came to change his mind because he decided that free expression was more important than dignity. And I agree with that, and that's why I'd be wary of new legislation. Okay. Speaking of potential new legislation and something that is, again, very much in the news is um, climate change and the fact that uh, there are uh, 16 teenagers that are now suing, I, I think it's something like five industrialized nations, not including the United States. I'm not entirely sure why we were singled out as not a part of that, but should, should the, does the Constitution, by guaranteeing all of its citizens life and, and the ability to live a, a healthy, prosperous life, more or less. Obviously not in those exact words, but that I think there are a lot of people that would argue that our Constitution is setting up a society in which we can live well. Will that, is there room for saying that we have a Bill of Rights, why doesn't the climate have a Bill of Rights? Why doesn't the world, why doesn't our actual, the soil underneath our feet that is America, why, why doesn't that also have a Bill of Rights? Well, obviously not in those words, which are the words you just used, are very important. Uh, right. The, the, the yes, Constitution no, exactly. has not previously been, been construed to include affirmative rights to healthy air or pure water or low carbon emissions. But should You be. might... Well, I, of course, I have no political opinions right. whatsoever. Uh, there, obviously. Although I, I do. I mean, actually, I... I guess I can tell you, since you asked, I uh, was moved by those protests by those mm -hmm. kids. I don't think this is a, con a problem that uh, can be solved at the constitutional level. Okay. Um, if there's legislation to be passed on climate change, as there already is, mm -hmm. it would come from Congress and the states. Um, we're already seeing 
suits by California, which are objecting to uh, the federal government and Trump administration's effort to prevent it from passing more rigorous emissions than the federal government itself on grounds of states' rights and federalism, which conservatives have traditionally been right. in favor of, and we'll see where those lawsuits go. Um, on the other side, we could see, uh, there was a study recently written up in the Washington Post, a scholarly study saying that uh, they could imagine a conservative Supreme Court striking down uh, environmental protection regulations requiring emissions limitations or other future regulations passed by the federal government as exceeding Congress's power to regulate interstate commerce or representing an excessive delegation of uh, legislative authority to the executive. So that would be a big deal. Mm -hmm. Imagine a future uh, Democratic president passing a Green New Deal and having a conservative Supreme Court strike it down using the same doctrines that the conservative court in 1936 used to strike down the first New Deal. That would be, uh, talk about provoking court packing. Right. So so all that is a, a way of saying that I, you could, I can imagine a future progressive court, this would be a sort of fantasy baseball for progressives because it's not, there's right. not a single justice on this court who would construe the U.S. Constitution to require an affirmative rights of, uh, you know, against climate change or a, a right to um, a, a safe, sustainable world. But if anything's possible. Future progressive justices could expand on that language of not being deprived of life, liberty, and property without due process of law to create such a right. It would just well, take if your house if your house is flooded because of the environment and you didn't have any sort of legal recourse to avoid it. Sure. Isn't that depriving you of property without due process? Well, traditionally, due process has to do with trials and uh, uh, the idea of a substantive, substantive rights that have to be protected and can't be deprived even with due process is a controversial series of doctrines. But we could have a lot of, uh, it might be a great constitutional law class, and I'm sure many people will teach them and learn from them, to imagine all the doctrines that might be invoked from takings and involved taking of property uh, without just compensation. Mm-hmm. Um, but but that also requires imposition of liability on the companies and the ability to sue them in ways that challenge current uh, standing doctrines. Uh, uh, it, uh, there was one case from the 1970s that said that an environmental group could sue to enforce uh, clean air regulations even though they weren't directly affected by them because all of us are affected by the right. environment. But this, this is just very rich hypothetical a series of hypotheticals right. at the moment but it's it's good to think about climate change because if, if that uh, uh, inspiring 16 year old Thunberg is correct then this will be a, a defining issue of the next few decades it'll produce among the most important legislation which means that it'll lead to among the most important constitutional conflicts exactly um, I want to shift our focus across the pond a little bit. Um, we are we are incredibly lucky to live in a country that has, I, I know I speak for all of us at the center and probably most of the people around the country, the finest constitution ever put to paper in the history of the world. Um, our mother country, uh, the United Kingdom, does not have a written constitution. They've, they've actually never had a written constitution. They've had bits and pieces here and there, Magna Carta, you know, established that the court had to exist in a specific place and 
set up you know taxation issues. Charles the First, uh, the English Civil War established that Parliament had control over the executive branch. Um, I, I know that you've also seen the same news I have today, which is that the uh, the British Supreme Court announced that Boris Johnson's decision to prorogue Parliament, which has been everywhere in the news, was unlawful, that the advice that he gave to the Queen was unlawful, and that, in effect, the decision he made, which I watched on TV, I watched the prorogue Parliament on TV, I didn't. For them to say it never happened seems odd to me. The fact that they don't have a written constitution is very interesting to us because we've always had one. Is there any benefit to not having it codified and simply deal with issues as they come up? Doesn't that give you a little more flexibility for when something that you couldn't possibly have foreseen arises, you can simply handle it as it comes? Well, first of all, like you, I was amazed to read that decision this morning. I felt like I was reading the British Marbury versus Madison. Mm -hmm. It was thrilling and startling and completely unchartered. It was striking how colloquial it was. There weren't a lot of legal citations. It was written in plain English mm -hmm. for everyone to understand. And it made the very clear case that although uh, Parliament can be prorogued for uh, legitimate reasons, it can't be for illegitimate reasons, and an illegitimate reason is purely uh, to achieve uh, partisan political gain, and that's what, uh, or, or rather, uh, to, 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 an illegitimate reason is to stop Parliament from doing its job, right. to stop it from deliberating, mm -hmm. and that's what was going on here. So, what a day to be <laughs> reading British constitutional or any any kind any of constitutional day. stuff. It was, it, was, is... it was absolutely stunning. Mm -hmm. uh, is Britain better off without a written constitution? I don't think so. I mean, they just had, we're debating in this country whether or not we're in a constitutional crisis. They are in a full-blown constitutional crisis yeah. because it's not clear who is sovereign. Mm -hmm. In theory, as the decision this morning said, parliament is sovereign. Right. And I learned that when I was a grad student in Britain many years ago that the queen in parliament, represented by the prime minister with the support of the parliamentary party, is supposed to be able to speak for the people, but that ultimately... Parliament itself is sovereign. Well, and John Burkow, the, the Speaker of the House of Commons, has been just an absolute lion of an advocate for the power of the House of Commons and for Parliament. So, I mean, he'd certainly agree with you that it is, Parliament should be sovereign. A absolutely. But on that, in that case, what was the constitutional basis for the referendum? How is it possible that you could consult the people in a one-off vote and ask them their opinion about a fundamental constitutional change. It doesn't fit with the theory of parliamentary sovereignty, which is why the British High Court had to tell Parliament the first time, no, you, you have to ratify the effects of the first referendum or else it has no constitutional standing. They were going to plunge ahead and implement it without parliamentary ratification. And even as a, you know, this is a sort of an, I did a second undergraduate degree in, in British politics, even I knew that Parliament supposed to right, take a look at that. It, yeah. yeah, exactly. And then there's the whole uh, staggering notion of making fundamental constitutional decisions by one-off votes. Brexit could never happen in the U.S. because we don't allow fundamental constitutional change by one-off votes. The reason our constitution is so hard to amend is because Madison and the framers thought that we should be guided by reason rather than passion, that the people should not speak directly, but that their passion should be filtered through thoughtful deliberation, and it should take a long time. You should have to jump through a lot of hoops before you make such mm -hmm. important decisions. So it was, that's why the 
referendum, setting aside whether you want to leave or remain, was a constitutional disaster, and it set in motion a series of chain reactions where the locus of sovereignty was unclear and kept shifting, and that's that was why we saw this astonishing tussle between the prime minister and parliament about who had the power, and now the court for the first time in history has jumped in without any real precedence to support it, aside from broad principles of the rule of law, Johnson will no doubt retaliate, and the fact that there's no written constitution, he said he'll obey the decision, like uh, Andrew Jackson was apocryphally said he, he you know, he wouldn't, but um, he, he is, some are saying today he'll try to prorogue Parliament again. He, he can obey the decision simply by having them come back, sit down on Wednesday, and then say, by the way, we're done again. Absolutely. So I think, without being too familiarist or, uh, you know, patriotic, I, I think this is a case where we are preserving the values of our British uh, brethren better than they are because we codified them in this great document. Um, just as early as this morning, um, the day we're recording this, uh, a, a member of parliament for the Green Party, Carolyn Lucas, um, was outside the Supreme Court and she um, she called for a written constitution, an actual codified constitution. So I think that that's been, I mean, in parliament I've heard people make that call, um, whether they're the Scottish National Party or, um, you know, a UKIP or even in the Liberal Party um, calling for a written constitution. If they do, what do you think would be best brought over from our constitution and what do you think they should avoid? Well, the most important thing is, is, is popular ratification. You can't just have a constitution proposed by parliament that becomes law. I guess you could if you wanted to maintain parliamentary sovereignty in some European written constitutions like the German constitution, as I understand it, do consider the legislature to be sovereign, so I guess you could. But it would be best in these polarized times, I think, to have a meaningful convention that proposed the constitution followed by a several-step ratification procedure. Two, two votes or something is common in, in Britain, uh, in, in Europe, for uh, referenda-like ratifications, and, and you wouldn't want just a, a, another one-off vote. Beyond that, I, I suppose the separation of powers is the main mm -hmm. thing, an independent parliament, executive, and judiciary. But now we're finding it hard to reconcile our the system with a monarchy. You know? <laughs> that was, uh, yeah. I was literally about to ask, well, what about the queen? <laughs> exactly. Then, then, it, then it becomes a little inconvenient for, for aristocracy, since right. that's what we were fighting against. Um, you know, and, and a judicially enforceable Bill of Rights, the framers thought was not the most important thing. And they left it out. They left it out, and even when they put it in uh, under pressure from the Anti-Federalists, there weren't serious bills of rights enforcement cases uh, until the infamous Dred Scott decision in 1857. Right. So, and that one they got wrong. They certainly got that wrong, and it didn't really get up and running until the 20th century. So you'd think that separation of powers would... Oh, and, uh, but, but, but I was in Ukraine, of all places, about three years ago, for no, I was not making contracts, and just I had no, no yeah, right, there's, right. there's nothing to see here. Right. Exactly. Yes, everything yes. was fine. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But you're, I, not un, you're not under oath at the moment. I'm not, I un, I'm not under oath, but, but I really, you know, I earned every penny that I uh, <laughs> from the Aspen Institute, which sent me over there to talk to a group of judges, and I asked them. They were writing a constitution. Mm -hmm. What's the most important factor? And they said an independent judiciary. Independent judiciary. More important than 
anything else that's written down, the ability of judges to reach independent decisions without telephone justice where the executive can call you up and tell you how to decide. So maybe that's what we're seeing in Britain. I mean, they do they do have one. Well, in that, that is, that's as of 2005. Before 2005, obviously, the Supreme Court actually sat in the House of Lords. They were called the Law Lords, and they were members of the House of Lords. So the House of Commons wasn't very happy with the fact that any appeal through the court system in the United Kingdom would just land in the House of Lords at a certain point. So in 2005, they actually did make that move to create an independent judiciary. And maybe, I don't know, do you think that that's the beginning then of that first step towards a written constitution is allowing the judiciary that can examine these issues? you're, You're right to note how recent it all was. And once again, it's just, it's amazing to watch this. And I, I guess I can't think of a precedent because we started with a written constitution and then there were independent judges in the colonies, but but uh, the great martial court decisions were interpreting the document that had already been written. To do it backward, first to create the Supreme Court and then to have them create a jurisprudence of judicial review and then to have a written constitution would be novel, but uh, these are novel times. Yeah, they are certainly that. And I really appreciate you taking time to come here and talk with us. Um, I know that we're all very excited to have you here, and I just can't thank you enough for taking time out of your extremely busy day to come and speak on our podcast. So um, this has been Beyond Aporia. I'm your host, Brian Smith. Once again, we've been talking today with Jeffrey Rosen, President and CEO of the National Constitution Center. Thank you. Thank you. Great conversation. is a podcast brought to you by the Hauenstein Center's Common Ground Initiative at Grand Valley State University. The director of the Hauenstein Center and producer of this podcast is Gleaves Whitney, and Andrew Whitney composed our theme music. I've been your host, Brian Smith. The Center is inspired by Ralph Hauenstein's life of service and leadership. For more information, visit us at gbsu.edu hc or look us up on Facebook.